0: This is lecture number four of Joseph Goldstein's course on Essential Buddhism taught at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado on July 26, 1974. It's a very rare and precious thing to have the opportunity to practice and understand the Dhamma. There are very few people in the world who are presented with this opportunity. Most people are circling around, driven by ignorance and desire, unknowingly, unmindfully, unaware of the possibility of getting off this wheel of samsara this wheel of life and death and rebirth and life and death. So to have the opportunity to to hear and to practice the way of freedom, of liberation, <coughs> is a very, very great and precious, precious opportunity that's given to us. <coughs> it does not happen by accident. It's not by accident that we are all here practicing the Dhamma. Such opportunities are created, are presented, because of something which in the Pali language is called parami. And parami means force of purification in the mind, forces of purity, perfection, merit, In a lot of the Buddhist literature, there is very much emphasis placed on making merit, right? doing meritorious deeds. It's very liable to be misunderstood in the English language, because we tend to think of, of making merit as some, some being up in the sky someplace giving out gold stars for good deeds. And it's not that at all. Merit means the accumulation of moments of purity in the mind. Every mind moment that is free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion, contributes to this force of purification in the flow of consciousness. Every action that we do based on non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, adds to this force of purification and it makes possible all kinds of happiness. There are two kinds of parami. One is the parami or the perfection of conduct and one is the perfection of wisdom. And they're both they're both necessary. They complement one another. The forces of purification involved in right conduct go very much to create the possibility of happy surroundings, pleasant pleasant circumstances, agreeable relationships, the chance to hear the dharma, to hear the law. The, The perfection of wisdom, the parami of wisdom, makes it possible that if given the opportunity to practice and hear the dharma, the perfection of wisdom makes it possible for understanding to grow. And in the Buddha's time, there were, there were many people who had not sufficient parami of conduct to have the opportunity to meet the Buddha. Here was a being who was fully enlightened, a fully enlightened Buddha, an exceedingly rare occurrence in the world. And yet some people did not have sufficient, some people in that time, did not have sufficient accumulation of purity within themselves to have the opportunity to meet him. Those who had fulfilled parami of conduct, the perfection of conduct, did have this opportunity, came into contact with the Buddha and his teachings. Of those people who met the Buddha and who heard the Dhamma some of them did not have the necessary parmi of wisdom to understand what he was saying. Right? They went to the Buddha, they heard the words, they went away as ignorant as before because the parami of wisdom had not been brought to maturity. So very much of the spiritual path involves the development and cultivation of these two kinds of parami, of conduct and of wisdom, so that not only are we presented with opportunities to hear the Dharma, but also with, with the sufficient force of wisdom in the mind to put it into practice and to understand it. Forces of purity, paramis are the source of all happiness which comes to us, both in the worldly sense, in physical, sensual pleasures and happiness, and also in the super-mundane sense, the highest happiness of enlightenment, of insight, of wisdom, all come about through this development, moment to moment, of a mind that is free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion. There are three pillars of the Dharma. three fields of activity in which this accumulation of parami, the cultivation of purity, can happen. The first of these fields of activity is that of generosity. Generosity, or giving, is the expression in action of the mental factor of non-greed. Non-greed means letting go, not holding on, not grasping, not clinging. Every time we share something, every time we give something, it's it's strengthening this factor of non-greed. And it's a very powerful force. The Buddha said that if we knew As he did the fruit of giving not a single meal would pass by that we would not share so powerful is every act of generosity it's a very (coughs) strong accumulation of harmony a very strong purifying force in the mind it is precisely the greed factor the clinging or grasping or attachment which keeps us bound to this wheel of samsara, of life and death. We're bound to it because of craving for it, clinging to it. And every act of giving is a weakening of that clinging, of that grasping. Every act of giving is a strengthening of the non-greed factor. So not only does the karmic result come back to us in terms of abundance and prosperity and nice surroundings, pleasant situations, but also it serves as a very strong force for liberation, right? this accumulated force of not holding on, non-greed, non-grasping, letting go. Generosity is very much the, the basis of a harmonious and beautiful relationship with other people. Friendship with other beings is very much enhanced by the quality of generosity. A being who has cultivated giving to a high extent has many friends. It's a very very beautiful way of relating to other beings, sharing things with them. It is said that there are three kinds of givers. One kind is called the beggarly giver. Right? He gives something, but he gives it after much hesitation, much reflection. And also he gives the worst of what he has, right? the leftovers. Things which are leftover and he is not using, that he gives away. And then after much thought should I give it, or shouldn't I, and maybe it's too much, and that kind, of, that kind of reflection. That's the beggarly giver. The next kind of giver is the friendly giver. That is, giving those things of the same value which he himself uses. Giving things equal to what one uses in one's life giving that away, and with less hesitation, with a little more open-handedness. The kingly giver is one who gives away the best of what he has, better than what he uses for himself, without any hesitation, without any, without any reflection about how much. Very open-handed, very spontaneous, very easy, very abundant giver, the kingly giver. Generosity is one of the perfections of the Buddha. It's a quality of mind which over very, very many lifetimes, the bodhisattva, which means that being who was working towards Buddhahood, the bodhisattva cultivated this quality of generosity until he became the supreme example of the the kingly giver. And there are many stories in the Jataka tales, which are tales of of the bodhisattvas' lives before achieving Buddhahood, of his giving his life away in order to help other beings, out of compassion for other beings. One story is that he was was on top of a cliff someplace, and below he saw a tiger with her two cubs. And the tiger was very sick and had not much food, and the cubs were dying because the tiger could not give milk to the cubs. Out of compassion, for the suffering of those animals, it is said that he threw himself down the cliff, offering his body for the tiger to eat, so she could so she could give food to the cubs. That is a kingly giver. <laughs> we we can cultivate we can cultivate this quality of generosity within ourselves so that we all become kingly givers. From wherever place we're starting now, we can practice generosity. It is not with the sense of anyone doing anything. It's not that I am giving to you and I am so good because of it. If understood properly, it is seen as the cultivation of an impersonal mental factor. That is the factor of non-greed. No one who is generous. Merely the functioning of that quality of mind. And as we practice anything to become proficient in it, we can practice generosity. We may be starting out as very beggarly givers, giving very, very hesitantly and not giving very much. But we practice. Every opportunity that arises, even if it's with difficulty, we make the effort and share. And with practice, this factor of non-greed gets strong, stronger, and it becomes easier and easier to give more and more spontaneously, with a great deal of openness. There are two kinds of consciousness involved in giving, in all, in all kinds of actions. One is called prompted consciousness, prompted. And that means that we do an act after much reflection. The thought comes to do something and we we think about it a lot, whether we should or should not be doing it. The action is very prompted by those thoughts. The other kind of consciousness is called unprompted, which means very spontaneously. When the factors of mind are strong, most of our actions come from this unprompted consciousness. When we develop generosity, non-greed, when we become strong in it, it happens automatically, very spontaneously, without, without much forethought. We have to cultivate it, we have to make it strong. We can all become very kingly givers, but it takes practice. non-greed is a very beautiful factor to cultivate it becomes the cause of very great happiness in our lives it is a very great karma and in fact it is listed as the first of the perfections of the buddha this this perfection of generosity this is the first the first Pillar of the Dharma, the first field of purifying activity, the cultivation of generosity, non-greed. The second field of purifying activity, the second pillar of the Dharma, is that of moral conduct. And for, for lay people, those people who are not walking the path of monks, Moral conduct is expressed in the form of five very basic precepts of living. And they are not killing, not stealing, not engaged in sexual misconduct, not lying or false speech, not taking intoxicants which cloud the mind. These are five very basic precepts or moral rules which put us into harmony with our surroundings. Not killing means not knowingly taking the life of other sentient beings. All beings are desirous of happiness, want to avoid pain and suffering, want to avoid destruction. We should not be the cause of suffering or pain to any (coughs) other being, to any other living being. It is a much greater happiness, a much more skillful, wholesome state of mind to be the agent of the preservation of life rather than that of destruction. Much easier to take a spider that's inside one's house and put it outside than to stomp on it with one's foot. We should be very careful about restraining ourselves from killing, right? Not stealing means not taking those things which are not given to us. Sexual misconduct is generally generally refers to adultery, or committing those kinds of acts which, out of greed or pleasant sensation, suffering to other beings. We should not, through our our acts of sensuality, be the cause of pain or suffering to another being. Not lying or false speech also includes not only telling the truth, but avoiding a lot of useless, frivolous talk. A lot of our lives are spent in babble. It just things come up, and we say without thought, without, without considering whether it's useful or unuseful, helpful or not. Restraint of speech is very helpful in making the mind peaceful. We should not use abusive language, slander, lies. All our speech should be geared to cultivate harmony and unity and peacefulness between people. Gentle speech. We are walking on the path towards enlightenment, towards towards light, towards freedom, towards liberation, towards clarity of mind. It is not so useful to take things which cloud the mind, which make the mind dull, which is the last precept, to avoid any kind of intoxicant which clouds the mind. That's like taking a step backwards. these are the five very basic moral precepts which we should integrate into our lives. They should not be understood as the Five Commandments, right? Thou shalt not do this. It's good to understand the value of following them, And, and the importance and value of the precepts is on many levels. First of all, It protects us from the creation of unwholesome karma. Mm -hmm. All of those acts involve unskillful states of mind. That is either greed or hatred or delusion, which is productive of pain and suffering. Every act that we do, which is motivated by greed, hatred or delusion, the karmic result of that act comes back to us as more pain, more suffering, more unpleasantness. So by integrating these precepts into our lives protects us from the creation of this unwholesome karma. It makes us mindful. Somebody who has consciously taken the precepts, for example, not to kill. I take the precept not to kill. Then a mosquito lands on the arm, right? And just about to smash it, Having taken the precept will be a cause of mindfulness arising just then. Right? There will be in the mind the awareness that I have resolved not to kill. And just in that moment it acts as a god, a protection. It very much keeps us from the accumulation of unwholesome karma. So on that level it's very important for those people in whom mindfulness is still in the process of being developed right we go through a lot of our lives not so mindful not so aware of what we're doing having taken the precepts as a rule of living acts as a great god a great protection that's on one level the value the value of them <coughs> on another level you will notice that any unskillful act is a down for the mind, right? It brings us down. It's heaviness. It's, a, it's darkness. It's a cloud in the mind. It's a dragging force. And every skillful action, every restraint from unwholesome activity is a great lightening. There's a lightness and clarity in the mind. As you begin to observe the mind engaged in various activities, you will find that it is not so pleasant to be killing things. Right? It brings us down. It's not so pleasant to be stealing. Any of those activities which are based on greed, hatred, and delusion cause a heaviness to arise in the mind. And so the taking of these moral precepts as a rule for living keeps us very light keeps the mind very open, very clear. It's a much easier way to live, not so complicated. That's the second second level of understanding the importance of the precepts. Not that they are commanded by some being, but because they can be understood in the way they affect our quality of life. They are also the the field out of which concentration can grow. A mind which is engaged, a mind and body which is engaged in unwholesome activity will find it impossible to concentrate the mind. Moral restraint, on this very basic level, is the cause of concentration to arise. Without concentration, it is very, it is very difficult to see into the nature of things. So it, it's a building, the the foundation being moral, moral restraint, the first level being concentration, the second level being wisdom. Without without following the precepts, we cannot concentrate. There's very poor samadhi. With poor samadhi, with a scattered mind, there cannot be insight or wisdom. Without wisdom, there can be no liberation. There can be no freedom. So this kind of understanding helps us to see the value of making these precepts, which are very basic uh, rules for living in society and with other people, very harmonizing precepts, to see the value of making them part of one's life. In the beginning, when the mindfulness is not so strong, it's as if we impose them on ourselves. We take these rules of conduct and we, we resolve to follow them. In fact, they are the very natural expressions of the Dharma, of the Tao, of living mindfully. When one has cultivated mindfulness, automatically the precepts are followed. There is no sense of imposition at all because they are the natural expression of a clear mind. A person who has cultivated a very high degree of awareness (coughs) does not go around killing and stealing and lying, not because of some imposition but because that's out of tune with the nature of things. So as we progress on the path towards more and more understanding and enlightenment, we automatically become in tune with how things are happening, with the flow of phenomena. And at that point these precepts become very natural, very effortless. In the beginning they are a great help. OK, that's the second field of purifying activity. Right? Generosity, moral restraint. The third field, the third pillar of the Dhamma, is meditation. And meditation is divided into two kinds. First, the cultivation of one-pointedness, of concentration. And that's done by giving the mind a single object and training the mind to stay on it. This kind of training in concentration makes the mind very steadfast, very steady. The example is given of a flame on a candle in a windless place. It does not flicker. A concentrated mind does not flicker. It does not waver. Very steady on the object. That steadiness gives a very great strength to the mind, a very powerful force happens when we begin to concentrate our mind, when this factor of one-pointedness is developed. There cannot be the cultivation of wisdom or of insight until there is a minimal amount of samadhi, of one-pointedness of mind. The mind which is scattered, which is just flitting from object to object to object, is unable to penetrate into the nature of things, into the process. So samadhi development to a point is very necessary. The second kind of meditation, or field of purifying activity, is that of cultivating insight or wisdom. And that means seeing into the process of things, seeing how things are happening. What do we see when we develop insight into the Dharma, into the nature of things? First we see that everything is impermanent. Everything is in flow, arising and passing away moment to moment. Consciousness, the object, all the different mental factors, the body, the mind, internally, externally, all phenomena share in this flow of impermanence. And when the mind is very clear, it sees this impermanence on a very microscopic level. Instant to instant, we are being born and dying. There is nothing to hold on to, nothing to grasp at. No place of mind, no situation of body, no, no situation outside of ourselves is to be grasped at, because it is all impermanent. The development of insight very much means experiencing this flow of impermanence within oneself so that we begin to let go, not to grasp so desperately at this mind-body phenomenon. Seeing the impermanence, experiencing it, leads to an understanding of the inherent unsatisfactoriness of it. Unsatisfactory in the sense that it is impossible of giving a lasting happiness. It cannot give a lasting happiness precisely because it is impermanent. If we think that this body is going to be the cause of our, of our permanent peace and happiness and joy, it's not seeing into the inevitable decay process that's going on within the body. And as we begin to get old and diseased and, and decay and die, For people with a strong attachment to the body, there's going to be great suffering. Inherent in all things which arise is decay. All the elements of matter, all the elements of mind, all are arising and decaying. Nothing to hold on to, nothing to grasp at, The third thing that is seen very clearly with the development of insight, of awareness, is that in all all this flow of phenomena, there is no such thing as an I, a self, a me or mine. It is all impersonal phenomena flowing on, empty phenomena, empty of self. There is no one entity behind it all, which is experiencing it. The experiencer, the knower, is itself part of the process. Knowing is going on. The objects are going on. No one behind the process. As insight is cultivated through, through the practice of mindfulness, just being aware of what's happening moment to moment without clinging, without condemning, without identifying with it. So then all these three characteristics of existence become revealed. We experience them very deeply. And it's the experience of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, of non-self. The experience of how things are working which very much leads us to enlightenment, to freedom, to letting go. These are the three fields of purifying activity, generosity, moral restraint, and meditation. These are the paramis which have to be cultivated, the forces of purity moment to moment. All of these three fields of activity very much involve the cultivation of mind moments which are free of greed, not clinging, free of hatred which is non-condemning, free of delusion which is being aware in the moment, being mindful of the object. And every mind moment free of greed, hatred and delusion adds to the accumulated force of purity within this flow of consciousness And it brings not only all kinds of worldly happiness as the result of those skillful states of mind, it leads us to the very highest happiness, which is freedom. It's peace, enlightenment. Any questions? Um, if, there, if everything is impermanent,
1: how can the three marks of existence be even considered? If suffering is one of them, um, it seems to be something that's pretty permanent. Um, if it's inherent. As you say, some things are. like change how
2: could that be impermanent
0: okay the description of the process are concepts concepts are permanent that is to say I was a man yesterday and I'm a man today and I'll be a man tomorrow the concept of man stays the same okay all concepts share in, this, share in this permanence. The reality underlying them are part of the flow. Right? The reality causing the concept to arise is all impermanent. All those things which, which are the condition for the concept of man to arise, the elements of mind and body, they themselves are impermanent. Right? The word suffering is a concept. Suffering existed yesterday, it exists today, it will exist tomorrow. It's a concept which points to a certain experience. The experience is one of things arising and passing away with a certain unsatisfactory nature. But the experience is free of the word. The experience is free of the concept. We only use the words to point to that kind of understanding. But you see that everything that it's pointing to is also arising and passing away. There's no one who is suffering. There is suffering without a sufferer, acting without an actor, doing without a doer. There are processes going on. As we experience the process level of things, all these characteristics, not necessarily thoughts about them, but the experience of their nature become revealed.
2: I don't experience it falling away.
0: You don't experience? I
2: don't
1: don't experience it falling away. What
0: falling away?
2: um,
1: Just one of the marks, the suffering. It comes, it goes, then it comes and then it goes. And there's a permanence in that, in, in the transience of it. It never leaves, even if it leaves for five minutes, it comes back.
0: The, the experience of the unsatisfactoriness is present in every moment, because that's one of the marks of existence. But every moment, consciousness and object mm-hmm. are arising and passing away right? with, with its uh, inherent qualities. At the next moment, it's a new moment of consciousness and object and, and mental factors. Nothing is carried over. right? There's no element of them which is the same, although they share the same characteristics. The end of suffering, the Buddha said he he teaches one thing only, suffering and the cessation of suffering. Nirvana is the end of that process, the end of suffering, the end of pain. That's very valuable. If If you are experiencing suffering in every moment, that's very good. It brings a lot of detachment, you know, a lot of letting go.
2: Ribicciate
1: drinks and he speaks with women and he does lots of things that are against the precepts. And I assume that he's working on another
2: level that I don't have to. I mean,
0: we're working with that. That's one assumption you might make. <laughs>
2: Sometimes am get the straight answer, sometimes because
0: it's down to the right to security, sometimes but I don't know. And I'm wondering, are the priests having an arrest, but not at all? I don't know. You know, one rule, which serves as a general guideline, For all of our actions and the understanding of the place of the precepts, very much involves the state of mind, the quality of mind, the mental factors involved in an action. (coughs) Any mind which is motivated to action by greed, which is which is desire, clinging, or hatred, which is aversion or condemning or delusion, which means not knowing, regardless of whom it is, who it is. Right? Any mind which, at, at a particular moment, is acting from greed, hatred, or delusion, it's an unskillful state of mind, productive of bad comments. Right? And it does not matter who it, The person who's doing it, it can be anybody. Right. There is the theoretical possibility, and I don't know if in actual practice it happens or not, perhaps there are some beings who can do some of these acts without greed, hatred or delusion. I don't know. I can't. You know, we all have to examine our own minds as a general rule for right conduct, which keeps the mind free of those, of those three unwholesome roots, they're very helpful precepts to follow. Right? Generally, we do not kill unless out of aversion. And all of the precepts generally are involved with these unwholesome states of mind. Okay? But always it comes back to an examination of one's own mind. You know, in doing an act, what state of mind are we in? The karma involved is not primarily involved in the action, but in the state of mind. The answer to that question is really, it depends upon his state of mind when doing all these actions, and I certainly don't know what it is. Of giving what? And after a couple of years I got nervous, I Can
2: you clarify for me why a person would be strung out from giving
0: to entire time? We are all at different levels. We're not all at the level of the bodhisattva who gave his life so the tiger could feed her cubs. You know, there might be a momentary impulse to do something like that, followed by many moments of regret. You know? We have to sort of feel out the place that our mind is at in the present moment and from that place cultivate the generosity appropriate, you know, to that place of mind. It (coughs) grows. As we practice it, we get to higher and higher places with respect to giving, right? But when it grows uh, through the cultivation of wholesome states of mind, then it's all integrated, right? There's no regret which follows. Not at all. You can have, in fact, the only way to have a very beautiful, easy, loving relationship is when it is free of possessiveness and attachment. Possessiveness and attachment does not add anything positive to a relationship. But not having possessiveness or attachment does not mean not having commitment. There can be a commitment to a relationship without attachment. Within Within that framework of commitment, adulterous behavior is often the cause of pain and suffering to the other parties, right? And so we we should refrain from that action, which is the cause of pain. It it, It does not involve clinging. Most people don't. You know, if we all had our acts together, we wouldn't be here. So given that fact, we should minimize... The suffering we cause. You know, it's very easy to to do an unskilful state of act and say, "Well, if the other person were enlightened, he wouldn't be suffering." (laughs) I don't think that's such a useful (laughs) reflection.
1: (laughs) Um, I think the the basis of it is. The clarity with, with which you kind of with which these precepts are set down and the question is can, can that be so clearly marked um, in the book of John he says the way which is named is not the way uh, discriminations which are made are not great discriminations right.
2: uh, okay. it seems
1: as right. though precepts steps to do a God for for a certain level. Um, then you know my impression is that they for one can become a big thing because they are concepts which you can cling to. Even pulsing states of mind you can cling to. Um, as well as that, uh, it seems that that there are actions which which were, which. Can arise out of compassion which will be against certain of the precepts. Like um, you in know, like in Tibetan art a lot of times the embodiments of compassion are portrayed as very uh, fierce. Very fierce. Um, and so, you know, a compassionate act could be to lie to spare somebody from accumulating that on like that example that we last And uh, I thought it, it came down to, to a sort of, it's possible that intuition, as far as inaction, and
0: the precept could at some point be Okay. There are a few things involved in what you're saying. First, all of these uh, fields of purifying activity are very much to be understood in terms of the mental factors they're cultivating, right? Not the action itself. There's no great virtue in sitting, right? If you're sitting involved in daydreaming, (coughs) right, or involved in a lot of lustful thoughts, the sitting in meditation, that's not where it's at. It's the cultivation of mindfulness, right? In all of the actions, the right actions of conduct, It's not primarily the action which is important, but the state of mind motivating it. If we do an action out of compassion, then it's wholesome, right? Most of us are not at that place of awareness or mindfulness where we are so perceptive of all the factors involved in every activity. So until we reach that level of awareness, where we're really tuned in to every motivating aspect of our actions, where we can determine whether it's skillful or unskillful. As a general guide, these precepts serve a very useful function. One way of understanding it might be somebody wants to learn to play the flute. Kay? To begin with, you play the long tones, and, you play, and you play the scales. You do all these different exercises, right, to develop proficiency. And you practice very slowly. All the pieces you practice very slowly, very carefully to get it right. A person who has been playing for 20 years or 30 years and is a master no longer has to practice in the same way. He has cultivated that proficiency where the playing becomes effortless. As we develop in mindfulness and awareness, through the practice of our scales and long tones, which is generosity and moral restraint, it gets to a place of living effortlessly, right, without making these conscious distinctions and choices, but just letting the dharma unfold. The kind of harmonious conduct which is described or expressed in the precepts, at first seems like an imposition, but in fact is just a very natural expression of how an enlightened being acts. Right? That is, with always, always having skillful states of mind. Automatically, there is non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Another way of understanding the relative value of these three different kinds of harmy to understand the force of purity involved in each. In the act of giving, the purity, the force of purification depends upon three things. Depends on the purity of the giver, the purity of the gift, and the purity of the receiver. And for that reason, a person who gave a rightly acquired gift to the Buddha, acquired a tremendous force of purity through that act of giving, because of the buddha's transcendent <coughs> virtue right an overwhelming an overwhelming uh, quality of purity in the buddha's mind very powerful to have had the opportunity to give something to the buddha buddha said that it is less purifying less meritorious to have given a gift to the buddha and the whole order of monks it is less meritorious than to have cultivated a thought of loving-kindness for even a moment. Right? One moment of loving thought <coughs> is more purifying than giving a gift to a fully enlightened Buddha in the whole order of monks. Many times more forceful than that, more purifying, is to experience the impermanence of phenomena for one single instant. To see how things are arising and passing away moment to moment. One instant of experiencing impermanence on that level, many more times purifying than developing a thought of loving-kindness, which in turn is many more times purifying than having given a gift to the Buddha. If we understand the the power of insight, of wisdom, in that it leads to liberation. Right? You give a gift to the Buddha and you're reborn in heaven for a hundred thousand lifetimes. Right? Very powerful, but again, you're, you're still on the wheel, still liable to, to unhappiness and suffering. Likewise, you develop thoughts of love and kindness. It's very beautiful, very powerful, still involved with the concept of being, of person. The insight into impermanence is that which frees us from the whole conceptual level. It frees us from this wheel. If one is being mindful, it's interesting. One monk once came to the Buddha. You know, for the, for the Sangha, for the order of monks, there's a whole list of rules you have to follow. You know, Two hundred and some odd major rules, and I don't know how many minor rules. And one monk came to the Buddha and he said he just can't make it. He can't even remember the rules, much less much less follow them. So the Buddha said, can you remember one rule? Right? And the monk said he thought he could.
2: <laughs>
0: the Buddha said, be mindful. Right? Everything else comes out of that awareness. If you're mindful, automatically there is right action, right? Without, without that kind of discrimination. The laying out of these, of the precepts and of the, the need for generosity are an aid to people who have not yet cultivated the ability to stay mindful, you know, all the time. So it's a help. As the mindfulness, as the awareness grows, it all follows naturally. There's no, there's no sense of discrimination or of concept. It's just the result of living awarely with awareness. I don't know if any of that answers your question.
1: It answers some questions. I also wanted to ask about...
2: Just if I find some
1: confusion in... We're trying to develop kingly giving. There would seem to me to be some confusion between that and Rinpoche's teachings of, of being very secure in the world and the physical reality that we exist in. We have an obligation to to keep ourselves together, and so rather than give everything away and thus end up a beggar type creature, the other right. thing is of giving, of giving without any judgment. It's one thing to give to a to some woman in, in some poverty country with a baby a breast, who obviously is in need, and another thing to give to a spare changer on University Avenue, who I can judge. You know, he's got an obligation to get his shit together. Right.
2: Okay,
0: first question. The cultivation of kingly giving does not necessarily mean that we go out and give everything away. It means giving with a very great openness, right? Appropriate to the situation. We have a certain responsibility to ourselves to keep things together so that we can cultivate the practice, cultivate the factors of enlightenment even more. Right? The, the level of giving will will very much depend upon the particular <coughs> evolution of mind. So there should not be an image of how I should be giving, right? And trying to live up to that when that's not the place we're at now. It's merely in the present moment, taking every opportunity to cultivate the factor, right? the factor of non-greed, when the situation is appropriate. It's very simple. It's not, it's not complicated. Right? It's just when the opportunity arises to give, we should give. Let it unfold by itself. right? When it gets to the point in your mind when you're ready to fling yourself over a cliff to feed the tigers, at that point you will. It will all unfold naturally, right, depending upon our own individual evolution of mind. It's one of the things my teacher, the essence of his teaching, which I must have heard a million times, is to be simple and easy about things. To take things very simply and very easily, not to complicate things, with that attitude of mind, of simplicity and ease, you know that it's a good thing to give, so the opportunity presents itself, you give. Right? The whole Dharma unfolds from, from the very place we're at now to the highest enlightenment. We just have to take things in this easy way as they, as they arise. So in practice, there's no difficulty. Right? As far as discrimination between who you give to and, and who you don't, it's good to understand the those three ways of giving being purified by the by the giver by the receiver and by the gift itself it's always good to give because it's always the non-greed factor depending upon the situation and how that situation affects our minds will depend on whether you, whether you give in that situation or not, In other words, if there are, if there are thoughts that this guy ought to get his stuff together, and I'm not going to be given to him, it's not such a wholesome state of mind to be given something, right? So you just have to examine your own mind and your own motives. One could conceivably give to somebody like that, just understanding that that's where he's at, and I'm going to give anyway. Not saying either one is better than the other, but just to examine your own mind in every situation right? Giving when it feels good, when it feels appropriate. It's easy, it's not difficult to give things. You know, just whenever the opportunity arises and you feel good about it, and so the act comes very spontaneously. Um,
2: I'm progressing for a moment, um, I, I wanted to answer
1: this later, but we can't go inside meditation. Um, it wasn't very explicit on um, like the Magga and the Bala, and like um, the it's happy, Magga, Bala. <laughs> and I was the higher stage, like, you know, knowing I got you didn't mind, and I just, I read it, but I still didn't quite grasp what I didn't even grab it anyway.
2: Sorry.
0: OK, those words refer to the experience of Nirvana. Right. Magha Uh When you experience it, then you'll know what they mean. <laughs> you know, but that's what they refer to, the, to, the, to the experience of enlightenment, to, to what happens in the flow of consciousness at the moment of nirvana happening. Right? I don't know what else is so useful to say. <coughs> it's much, you, there's a path. There's a very <laughs> clear-cut path leading from right here to the highest enlightenment. All we have to do is walk on it, you know? It,
1: <laughs> I thought it was a in
0: no, that those words are descriptive of, of the nirvanic experience. But it's not so helpful to get involved in that, right? Because it's, it's concepts about something not in the present. It's vague because it's, it's vague as long as it is outside the range of our experience. Right? When, it, when you have the experience, it won't be vague at all.
2: Uh, I'm a little confused about not lying. When you uh, don't verbalize something that
1: you're thinking it seems truthful and appropriate in the situation, is that considered lying?
0: not necessarily the buddha once gave a talk about when he would say something right when he would i mean he was the paragon of right speech because he, he never told he never said something untruthful and he only spoke what was true when it was all also useful right there could be something true a true perception which serves no use in saying right it would not be of help to another person, perhaps, because they're not in a place where they can hear it. Right? So that, that sort of criterion is helpful. We should speak the truth when it is useful to do so. Now, it's very beautiful and peaceful to stay in a place of silence of mind, just keeping the mind very silent, very aware, very alert. When appropriate to speak, we should speak. <coughs> But that takes a lot of mindfulness because we're very conditioned to a lot of talk right? and the words come out before we're, before we're even aware that, that there was an intention to do so. It's all very mechanical. But as the mindfulness gets sharper, we begin to be aware before we begin talking, oh, the intention to speak arises and we're mindful of it. And then we be, can begin to see whether, both whether it's truth, truthful and also whether it's useful.
2: <laughs> right?
1: Um, a couple of weeks ago you were talking about our relationship with our parents and how it's a fulfillment of the Dharma to try to show our parents the way. But I mean, we were talking about like the nature of giving and the purity of giving. but there's just like my, like my parents live in denver and they wonder what I'm doing and what I'm doing. <laughs> and I try to explain it to them but it's just like there's just no way.
0: okay. There are many ways of communicating. (coughs) Speech, perhaps not being the best, right? There's a lot of giving going on when we're with people being in a certain way, right? If you're with your parents or with any other people and you are very cooled out, right? Very non-judgmental, very accepting, very full of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, you don't have to say a thing right? The, the vibes are there, and they create a certain space. It seems like
1: they can, in a way, they start to pick up on it, but as soon as they ask me about it, and I
0: start to express to them what's going on, it just loses. Right. It takes a long time. You know, people, we're going to get into it later on, the clinging to views, clinging to opinions. A lot of people are very are very much attached to their own way of looking at things and as soon as you say something which somewhat threatens it, it becomes they become very defensive right so the way is not to threaten just to be how you are letting letting the Dharma unfold right a peaceful mind has its effect on its surroundings it takes time and it takes patient patience and a lot of love right you will see I many of us who who were in India and then came back and living at home for a while went through exactly the same experience (coughs) and saw the slow evolution of of mind of the people we were living with. But it's not to expect that you say some profound words and immediately your parents are enlightened. It doesn't happen like that usually. Mm -hmm. Right, Right. But there is this responsibility to stay very to be living the Dharma with them, right? the effect will be
1: there.
0: That's why it's very nice to be in that very non-judgmental place. Not comparing oneself with others, which is a defilement of mind. This comparison. Oh, I'm so good now, and I understand, and they don't know anything. That's not so skillful. It's just to be very open, very receptive, very, very accepting. right? And in that place of non-threatening, then all the defenses begin to come down. Right. And, and there's a real possible for communication. And very much of this threatening, defensive mechanism revolves about the concept of I, of self, right? As long as you are trying to do anything to enlighten any other being, there's this thrust of the self and immediately a barrier is set up. Acceptance and openness of mind comes when there's no no idea of anyone there. And there is no one there in the first place. It's only an idea, only a concept. To be living that, right? To be living that openness and freedom of self very much tends to to break that that syndrome of threatening defensive mechanism. Right? You, you just are ah, and open, and then the barriers begin to come down. Right, right. It takes a lot of practice and a lot of skill to find the appropriate words to use. Right? Everybody can be touched. In fact, one of the one of the very great virtues of the Buddha was that he knew exactly what to say to each person. He knew just which words which would tap the seed of enlightenment within them. We are not the Buddha. You know, we make a lot of mistakes with our choice of words. But with mindfulness, with awareness of the situation, more and more skill grows. You begin to feel intuitively the kinds of words that can be heard. The words are not important. They're just pointing to a certain place. So any words which are helpful are good. And it just is getting into tune with what a person can hear. It's practice.
2: The
0: you know. general
1: terms are, are we more mindful or less mindful when we're
0: stoned? <coughs> For those who might not have heard the question, are we more mindful or less mindful <coughs> when we're stoned? It very very much depends on the individual person and the particular experience of that time. There is no rule at all. Some people go into clouds of delusion, right? Completely <laughs> deluded.
2: <laughs>
0: some people may achieve some great clarity and for the same person it might differ from time to time, which is why as a, as a systematic program of development, it's not the most reliable, right? (coughs) Not to say that for some people at some time it might not be a help. We have to be very observant of what's going on in our own mind so that we don't deceive ourselves.
2: Well, Rinpoche says about that,
1: especially with uh, grass, he says that specifically, uh, Westerners tend to conceptualize too much with it when they smoke grass. But consequently, you know, that's what we're trying to cut through, all our concepts, and, and Grassy says, freezes the concept,
0: and that's... I would say it depends very much on the person. I know some people who have gotten... They're both. They're just both things happening, and there's no way of knowing through the experience of anyone else, because how it affects our own mind is going to be different. So we just have to be very, very observant, right? If we find ourselves going into a state of delusion, which means getting involved in what's happening, not that sense of mindfulness, of detachment, of clarity, then it's not so skillful. It's just like going backwards. Right? If it should create a space of very great clarity and watchfulness and mindfulness, so then... Right?
1: You know, when you're sitting, I notice a lot of times you sit with your palm up. Is that something to remind you of something? There's a that great
0: something? mystical significance. I know that there
1: are
0: Right. It's probably completely mindless. <laughs> Enlightenment can happen in any posture. It does not depend upon any state at all.
1: But aren't
0: certain bring about certain factors? You can <laughs> cultivate mindfulness on, on position of body. And one of the Zen techniques is very much to make the posture of the body the object of mindfulness. Right. It's not the posture which is important, but the mindfulness. So okay? But that's a means to... Like a for a mind, no. It's an, it's an object on which to cultivate awareness. You can cultivate mindfulness on the body posture, on sensations in the body, on thoughts, on ideas, on seeing, on hearing. The objects are not what's important. It's the quality of awareness. And the different techniques of enlightenment, of, of developing insight, just have taken various Classes of objects and emphasize those. So in Zen, the emphasis is on mindfulness of, of posture. Right? There's a great there's a great stress, and it's a useful it's a very useful uh, technique. Okay, well, my conclusion was during the Renga training training. certain
1: postures. Like there were pictures of the Buddha like like this and like this and like this and like this, and like this different things. And for each position, one was like a position of equanimity and truthfulness. And we suppose, they call it Mahamuja or it expand the symbol out, out, out. Now, I was under the impression that by taking this position, that this was a psychological statement of that space, that the body made a psychological statement to take this
0: position. Okay. The body does not take psychological statements, make them. It's the mind which makes them. The body is just like this. All the body is are elements of matter. They don't know, they don't know anything. Right? The body can be ex- expressive of certain states of mind, but it is the states of mind which are important. Equanimity is a mental factor. Compassion is a mental factor. Wisdom is a mental factor. They can arise in any posture whatsoever. People get enlightened lying down, standing up, (coughs) walking, sitting, any time at all when all those factors of enlightenment come together. They are of the mind, right? Different postures of the body can be used as means to cultivate those states. They're not the only means. They're they're one way to to develop awareness or mindfulness or equanimity, Right? by giving the, the mind a certain object, namely a certain position of the body
1: that the mind is, other than this, set up a dichotomy, the fact that this is the mind?
0: No, this is not the mind. This, there's two, two processes going on simultaneously and inseparably. <laughs> and that is the process of knowing and the object. Mind and body are interrelated, but two distinguishable processes. Right? The body are the elements of matter, the earth, air, fire, water. There's no knowing faculty in, in matter. Knowing faculty is of the mind, and it's immaterial. The mind is not a certain place. You can point to the mind is here or here. It's immaterial. The two processes of mind and matter, knowing and object, are happening just simultaneously. For example, when I raise my arm, this is just matter. The arm doesn't know anything. There's the raising of it, which is the movement element, and the knowing of it, happening just together. Right? The knowing and the movement. They are distinguishable but inseparable. And very much, a very important insight which develops in the beginning of the meditation practice is precisely this distinction between the two processes, seeing that all that we are is this dual process of knowing an object (coughs) and no one behind it, no entity which is experiencing it all. Just consciousness and object arising and passing away moment to moment.
1: How, how do you explain, then, the use of postures in the Maitri project?
0: I don't know anything about the Maitri project.
1: Well, I don't really feel that I know sufficiently about it to describe it to you, you know, the form of form of But there is some sense of using postures as a statement of your general neurotic worldview, um, which you then become mindful of, apparently.
0: Okay, you can use the awareness of posture to develop mindfulness. Right? It's it's one valid technique of developing awareness, but it's the awareness which is important. I knew a girl in India, a Danish girl, who came. She didn't know anything about Buddhism at all. Right? A young girl. She wasn't particularly intellectual. Very simple. She came. She took instruction in the meditation. She reached the first stage of enlightenment in a month of practice, and she sat just like this for a month. You know, it's not the usual Buddha posture. (laughs) But she just sat, you know, and she she sat for hours at a time without moving. (coughs) I think that all of the techniques involved in expanding consciousness should be understood as different means of cultivating certain states of mind. And they are all valid. You can cultivate mindfulness on any object whatsoever. Using the body is a good technique. It works to to use the body as a vehicle for developing awareness. It should be understood that it's the awareness which is important. And it's precisely because people cling to the object that they use for the development of mindfulness, that all this kind of sectarian difference arises. Oh, I sit in posture and you have to sit with your back straight and like this, or, or you have to be watching the breathing, or you have to be watching your thoughts, or have to be watching sensations, and that misses the point completely. Right? They're all means to a certain balance of mind. Okay,
2: last question. I experience myself
0: and Could you say that again, please? very rarely flashes what's behind
1: in my body I feel it coming up and,
2: and the that, surface And that way it seems like the one, and that one uh, sort of with the other. And I don't see how you
0: It's not a dualism in the sense that they are not separable. You cannot separate them. But what's happening in the body is the flow of certain material elements. What you're feeling in the body is some kind of flow of sensation. The awareness is one thing. The the sensations going on are another thing. They're two different processes. Pardon? (coughs) Emotions are mental. They cause a certain state in the body to arise. In other words, the the state of mind affects the state of the body and vice versa. They are related. They are working in harmony. They are inseparable. They are distinguishable processes. You know, as I have said very many times, you don't have to believe anything at all. The whole nature of the Dharma, and one of the things that's chanted about, about the quality of the Dhamma is to come and see. Right? Come and see and, and be very observant, be very watchful of what's going on, and all these things will reveal themselves. Right? You'll, be, you'll begin to develop insight into the nature of mind, body, whatever it is, right? without having any preconception about, about how it should be. I think we should do that. So long. Today we're going to include thoughts as an object of meditation. And that is done by becoming aware of the fact that we are thinking, not getting involved in the content of the thought, not getting caught up in a train of association, but as soon as a thought arises, to make a mental note, thinking, 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 to observe the thinking process, watching it arise and pass away, not getting involved in it, and then to go back to the breathing. So we start with the in-out, or the rising and falling, being aware of the sitting posture in the gap between the out-breath and the next in-breath, being aware of whatever sensations become predominant in the object, in the body. And then when the mind begins to think, as soon as we're aware of it, to make the mental note of thinking, 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 as a way of reminding ourselves that that's what's happening in the moment and then to go back to the breathing, to the primary object. Not to judge the thought, not to condemn it, or cling to it, or identify with it. The thought is thinking itself. There is no one behind it. Just to observe that fact of process, and then to go back to the breathing. Okay, we'll sit for about half an hour. Remind you that anybody who would like to discuss either their meditation practice or questions of dharma individually. Sharon has office hours on Tuesday and Thursday between 2 and 4 in the afternoon and Wednesday morning between 10 and 11.30 and that's upstairs in this building, room 316. Also, those of you who did not get uh, a copy of this, which is the, the Sutra of the Third Patriarch, the Third Shan Patriarch in China. It's a very beautiful text. In fact, the whole Dhamma is contained in here. So those of you who did not get one uh, can take one. They're very beautiful. But only take one if you don't have one, because this is all that's left.
1: Thank you for listening.